0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here and moderator of these forums. This is the 12th year that Westminster, in collaboration with a host of co-sponsors, has been presenting these noonday forums seven or eight times a season to the community both to those of you who respond to the invitation to gather here in person as you have today, free of charge, and to those of you who tune in over Minnesota and American Public Radio. Our overarching rubric for each of our 80-some forums has been Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Today, the key issue is the state and future of education in this country. There is no one issue around which more issues facing our society are gathered. We need strong, experienced, keen voices of conscience to address this issue of issues. And we have it today in the person of Dr. Ernest L. Boyer. Dr. Boyer is the president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, located office-wise in Princeton, New Jersey. He is former US Commissioner of Education and a former chancellor of the State University of the New York system. He is the author of High School, a report on secondary education in America. His most recent work is College, the Undergraduate Experience and he is currently working on a policy study on education in children's early years about which i think we'll hear from him today no less let me read a paragraph uh, from his book high school published in 1983. we do not suggest that schools can be society's cure for every social ill still without good schools none of our problems can be solved. People who cannot communicate are powerless. People who know nothing of their past are culturally impoverished. People who cannot see beyond the confines of their own lives are ill-equipped to face the future. It is in the public schools that this nation has chosen to pursue enlightened ends for all its people. And this is where the battle for the future of America will be won or lost. How should America proceed? How, indeed, Dr. Boyer. We welcome you to this platform.
1: Thank you very much for that warm and generous introduction. I am delighted to be with you here in Minneapolis to participate in the Westminster Town Hall Forum, a gathering that's in the best tradition of the old-fashioned town meeting, perhaps best described as Westminster's Village Green. Uh, This morning, as you've just heard, I've been asked to talk about education, uh, a new look for the 1990s. And before speculating, Uh, On the future, I should like to pause for just a moment and take a backward glance. Uh, It was in 1647, 139 years before the Declaration of Independence, that the Massachusetts Bay Colony passed a law requiring that every town and village of 50 or more souls would hire a schoolmaster to teach all the children to read and write. Even in that day, education was far too important to be left to chance. George Washington declared that knowledge is the surest basis of public happiness. John Jay said that knowledge is the soul of the Republic. Uh, Horace Mann called the common school the greatest discovery ever made. And de Tocqueville in his celebrated visit to the United States concluded that the American people appear to be the most enlightened in the world. Frankly, I consider it an absolutely remarkable achievement that in the United States today, 45 million children hurry off each morning to 83,000 schools from Bangor, Maine, to Mission Bay, California. And all of this has been accomplished not by a Washington directive, but by local citizens committed to the audacious dream of the common school for the common good. We hear a lot of talk these days about how the schools have failed, but this noon I should like to propose at least two cheers for those principals and those teachers who are succeeding under enormously difficult conditions. And frankly, I'm convinced that most school critics could not survive one week in the classrooms they so vigorously condemn. We have, during the past 10 years, had a reform movement. And if I could put all of my remarks in perspective, I would say that it's my opinion that we are now struggling for the soul of school renewal. Are we going to focus primarily on structures and on systems, or are we going to focus on people and most especially on children? It's true that we have a very long way to go, and so on this occasion I should like to take the remaining moments and focus on perhaps a half-dozen key issues that I believe are absolutely crucial if we hope to achieve excellence for all children and not just the most advantaged. First, to achieve excellence in the 1990s, we simply must begin to focus on the preschool years and acknowledge that learning begins long before school and even before birth itself. In his first State of the Union message, President Bush announced six ambitious goals for all the nation's schools, mandates that were soon ratified by governors from all 50 states. And I must confess, it was the president's first goal that I found most authentic and compelling. Mr. Bush declared as the number one objective for the nation that by the year 2000, and hold your breath, by the year 2000, every child in America will come to school ready to learn. Now, I recognize this is an audacious proposition, hugely optimistic. But dreams can be fulfilled only when they've been defined. And if this nation would truly commit itself for the decade of the 90s to have every school, every child well-prepared for school, I'm convinced that all of the other goals would in large measure be fulfilled. And if we're searching for a central domestic agenda for the decade of the 90s, I would nominate the school readiness of every child. The harsh truth is that in America today, nearly one out of every four children under the age of six, is officially classified as poor. They're undernourished, hugely disadvantaged, and if we continue to neglect the poor children in this country, I'm convinced that both the quality of education and the future of the nation will be imperiled. We know, for example, that the brain cells of a child develop before birth. All seven billion of them, I believe, (laughs) haven't counted them recently, but that's what I'm told. We know that the brain cells of a child develop before birth, and yet one quarter of all pregnant women in this country receive belated prenatal care or none at all. We know that malnourished babies are two to three times as likely to be blind or deaf or intellectually deficient, and yet nearly half a million children are undernourished. We know that children who suffer from iron deficiency risk developing poor coordination skills And yet one-tenth of all the nation's babies have iron deficiency during their first two years of life. I'm suggesting that if all children are to come to school ready to learn, the thing we do is to not focus on more tests, but to focus on our children. We simply must have quality prenatal care for every single expectant mother in this country. And we must have good food for every infant, since good nutrition and good schooling are inextricably interlocked. But beyond a healthy start, which in my judgment is the most fundamental right for every child, school readiness also means universal preschool education to help every disadvantaged child overcome, not just poor nutrition, but learning deprivation too. And frankly, I consider it a national disgrace that more than two decades after the federal Head Start program was authorized by Congress to help three- and four-year-olds get special help, less than half the eligible children are being served. That's two and a half decades later. Millions of children have have been unattended to because we presumably don't have the money. It's like withholding from little children year after year a vaccine that would protect them from a dread disease. To put it as bluntly as I can, if we want all children to come to school, ready to learn. This surely means full funding of Head Start. Brings me to yet another dimension of the nation's first education goal. We must somehow give all children a healthy start. We must somehow overcome the learning deprivations that many children have. But it seems to me at the heart of the preschool experience is the centrality of language the symbol system that defines who we are and what we might become. Lewis Thomas wrote on one occasion that childhood is for language. It's in the first years of life that little children are empowered in the use of words. This is the time when the symbol system exponentially expands. And frankly, it's absolutely ludicrous to expect a child to be ready to learn if he or she grows up in an environment that is linguistically impoverished. And let me make it very clear that while I celebrate the wonderfully rich mosaic of languages in this polyglot culture we call the United States, as a matter, practically, when I say language, I mean English, which is, of course, the tool by which one negotiates himself and herself economically and civically through this society. If I had my wish, every child would be bilingual. But for the moment, let's understand that language development and English empowerment is the centerpiece of preparing children socially and educationally for our culture. I'm suggesting that language is our most essential social function. Our use of symbols sets human beings apart from all other forms of life, the porpoise and the bumblebee notwithstanding. And it's through these guttural utterances we call words that we're all intellectually and evocatively connected to each other and yet it's a process that we just take for granted and too frequently deny our children. I mean just pausing for the moment consider the miracle of this moment. Um, I stand here vibrating my vocal folds and molecules go bombarding in your direction and they hit your tympanic membrane and signals go scurrying up your eighth cranial nerve and there's a response deep in your cerebrum, which I trust approximates the images in mine. But do you realize the audacity of this act? I mean, I'm encouraged that you're looking in my direction. Uh, <clears throat> but I must tell you I've been a teacher far too long to confuse visual contact with cerebral interaction. <clears throat> but in any event, language says it all. Good health. Gives us life. Language gives us power. And it begins in utero as the unborn infant monitors the mother's voice. And I think it not inconsequential that the three middle ear bones—the hammer, the anvil—the three inner ear bones—the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup—are the only bones that are fully formed at birth. They're formed before birth, and I think it's appropriate to recall that we start listening before we start speaking. But after birth, it's frequently just the other way around. In any event, after birth, language explodes, and by the time the child marches off to school, he or she has acquired not only the framework of a symbol system, but 3,000 words. And the task of first grade teachers is not to teach children language, it's to build on the symbol system already well established. May I add parenthetically that when I speak of symbols, I mean not just the words, I mean music and dance and the visual arts as well. These too are symbol systems that children know and understand even from the day of birth. And watch the way little children before they master the vocabulary we call words, respond rhythmically to music and even aesthetically to color. And now that I'm a grandpa and can observe this process unencumbered by dirty diapers and burpings late at night, I'm absolutely dazzled by the capacity of three- and four-year-olds to use words not only for affection, but also for weapons of assault. When I was growing up in Dayton, Ohio, which, as you know, is the cultural center of the free world, we, we, we used to say that sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. What nonsense. I'd usually say that with tears running down my cheeks, thinking all the time, hit me with a stick, but stop the words. Children learn very early that words are power. Language is the centerpiece. And I'm convinced that to achieve readiness for all students, we need parents who know what language is. And I'd propose that we have parent education programs in all 50 states. Most parents want to do the very best by their children, and many, many do, but others would like guidance. And I must say I applaud the model program in the state of Missouri, which is the most outstanding in the nation. You're first in the sports world, you're first in parent education too. Almost all mothers and fathers want to do it right. And I believe the goal of parenting, of parent education would be the affirmation of the language so that children from the very first day of birth would be in, would be bathed in symbols. So my practical suggestion is that parents turn off television from time to time which is so distracting and occasionally debasing that they'd listen to their children tell them stories and that is a national commitment all children would be read to at least once a day. My point is that in the 1990s it's absolutely imperative that school reform Focus first on the preschool years. Let's not start testing at the end without putting our resources and our commitment in at the beginning. And this reform movement, which has been looking for the right ending, should, I think, finally discover the beginning. This means, then, good nutrition, full funding of Head Start, good parenting with primary emphasis on language. brings me to another major priority of the 1990s, if we wish to achieve school excellence, we simply must give more dignity and more status to the teachers. Several years ago, I couldn't sleep, and instead of counting sheep, I counted all the teachers I'd had. There were a few nightmares in the bunch, but <laughs> overall, it was a warm and happy reverie, and I remembered especially those who had consequentially changed my life. I remember Professor Joseph Smith, a literature professor at the university who, in graduate seminars, taught me through a Shakespeare course that great literature in truth reveals the deepest yearnings of the human spirit. I remembered Mr. Whitlinger, a high school history teacher, who said to me one day, Ernest, you're doing very well in history. You keep this up. You just might be a student. It was the highest academic accolade I'd had. But on the way home, I said, you mean I'm not a baseball player or a cowboy? I'm something Mr. Whitlinger calls a student. He rearranged my head at a time when I was confused about what I was and what I might become. I must say it was a great act of faith on his part, based on little evidence to be sure, but he def- he redefined a definition of what Ernie Boyer might become. I remember my first grade teacher, who I've spoken about 352 times, Ms. Rice, first day of school, said to 28 frightened, awestruck children, Good morning, class. Today we learn to read. First words ever heard in school. Not one child said, No, not today. Let's string beats. <laughs> Ms. Rice says, You learn to read. You learn to read. Spent all day on four words. I go to school. Sang them, recited them, even prayed them. On that delicate subject, I heard the one prayer in school that's acceptable to all faiths is, Dear God, don't let her call on me today. <laughs> and, and, uh, and incidentally, that's a prayer that'll take you right on to graduate school. <laughs> uh, uh, I um, do wish to pause and say that, in my judgment, kindergarten and first grade teachers should be the national heroes. and I would like to see a state dinner in the White House in which Mr. Bush would honor the nation's first-grade teachers. It's my own view that if this country would give as much status to first-grade teachers as we give to full professors that one act alone could perhaps revitalize the nation's schools. And it's my own view, however, that probably everyone in this <clears throat> audience today is here because of the influence of an unheralded teacher great teachers live forever, and while it's easy to think about teachers in the abstract, what we need to do is convert it into the experiences of our own lives and perhaps next to parents, it's a teacher who consequentially shapes the future of the nation. I'm suggesting that if we hope truly to renew the nation's schools, let's look first of all at the little children before they come and then look very carefully at the teachers who are the key. And frankly, this means turning the governance structure of this country upside down. It's now a pyramid, an inverted pyramid, in which all the heavy hitters are at the top. And finally, it's the teacher who has to march to the orders of all the rules and regulations. I think we somehow have to empower the teachers who guide the way, while others are organized to serve them at the local school, which brings me to this curious issue of school-based management about which we've all heard. The irony is, as I look at the reform movement in the United States today, it's really struggling with two absolutely contradictory notions of what governance is all about. On the one hand, we hear this sentiment about school-based management and the empowerment of teachers. And on the other, we we see education in this country, which began local, going national. And I think it's absolutely interesting to note that in the past ten years, we now have a national board of teacher certification. We now have national goals. We're talking about national standards. I've been involved for almost a year in something called national assessment. So we're, well, there was a time when we believed in local control, but the Gallup polls now show that this country is more interested in national outcomes than we are in the localization of our public schools. That's a historic shift. And it's my own view that how we resolve this tension between local control, school-based management, And national control will determine for decades to come the quality of the nation's schools. I happen to believe that accountability is essential. I also believe, after all, we're spending nearly $200 billion in public education. I also happen to believe that before this decade is out, we're going to have a national test for children in this country. I have to say parenthetically that while I think accountability is important, I worry about the rigid tests that we're now using simple truth is we're measuring that which matters least. I mean Howard Gardner, the psychologist at Harvard, reminds us that children have not just verbal intelligence, they have intuitive intelligence, and social intelligence, and verbal, and aesthetic intelligence, and spatial intelligence, and yet our instruments now are very crude and usually screen out all of the potentials that little children have except a few. And then we make judgments about who they are and what they might become on the basis of a single number. It's dangerous. It's perhaps unethical. James A.G. wrote that with every child who was born under no matter what circumstance, the potentialities of the human race are born again. And I would really hope that we had instruments that defined and included the potentials and not screened them out. In any event, back to the governance of this country, it's my opinion that we need a compromise— between the two strategies that are now on the table. I think it's possible to have local control. I think we can have national national goals, statewide standards, and then I would like to give absolute freedom to the local school to determine how they're gonna get there. Give them freedom over the budget, give them freedom over personnel, give them freedom over the calendar, give them freedom over the schedule, and hold them accountable for the outcomes, not the paperwork and procedures. So what this nation is going to face in the 1990s is trying to develop a new governance design in which we can have large purposes toward, schools, toward which schools are accountable and standards that they must meet. At the same time, freeing up teachers at the local level and say, we're going to depend on your creativity to get there and we'll hold you accountable for the outcomes, not the process. This leads me then to another priority for the next decade. I think that in addition to health and education and support for the teacher, we must give excellence and support to parents. Today, there's a big push being made across the nation to give more parental choice in deciding where their children will attend school. And I happen to support the idea of trying to get parents more involved. But at the same time, I think it's foolish to present choice of some kind of panacea that will solve all the education ills And frankly, I'm really troubled when I hear people say that what teachers really need to become productive is to give them a little more consumer-driven competition, as if they're not working very hard today. My own view is that parental choice does have a place in school reform, provided that we use it as a program for enrichment, not replacement. And it's also my opinion that the most urgent need is to get parents more actively involved in the education of their own children regardless of the school where the child may be attending. This leads me then to one final observation. During our study of the American high school several years ago I became convinced that we have not just a school problem but a youth problem in this country. The simple truth is that today's young people are growing up in a world that's spiritually impoverished It's a world in which they're being fed a steady diet of sex and violence and obscenities that degrade the sacredness of life. Our children are being told a dozen times a day how cool it is to destroy their own bodies with cigarettes and alcohol. And then we wonder why schools aren't disciplined and drug-free. Last year at the Carnegie Foundation, we surveyed 5,000 fifth and 8th graders, and we found that 40% of them go home every afternoon to an empty house. Sixty percent said they wish they could spend more time with their fathers and their mothers. Two-thirds said they often wish they had more things to do. And thirty percent said their family never sits down together to eat a meal. To put it as simply as I can, the young people in America today feel unneeded, unwanted, and unconnected to the larger world. Margaret Mead said on one occasion that a culture of quality is one in which three generations vitally interact. It's my own observation that in America today, we build a horizontal culture, culture, one in which each generation is almost wholly isolated from the other, and you literally can go from birth to death and spend your waking hours only with your peers. It's not a vertical culture, it's horizontal. Several years, for several years, my mother and father lived in a retirement village where the average age was 80. 80. One day my father called and said, no big deal being 80 around this place. He said, you have to be 90 just to get a cake. <laughs> but the nice feature was they had, a birth, they had a daycare center at the village. So every morning, uh, 50 little four- and five-year-olds would come trucking in. And my wife's mother, who was 80, got out of bed at 6 o'clock and gave them breakfast. And it was Grandma Tyson who really hugged them in the morning. And each child in the daycare center had an adopted grandparent, so when I'd call my father, he wouldn't talk about his aches and pains, he'd talk about his little friend, who he was sure was going to be governor, maybe even president, one day. And as daddy talked, I was really intrigued about what's gone out of our society, that this little five-year-old saw the agony and the courage of growing older and learned lessons about aging. And my father was renewed and inspired and made joyful by the energy and innocence of youth. Incidentally, I heard recently the reason grandparents and grandchildren get along so well together is they have a common enemy, but (laughs) maybe that's uh, not quite fair. I think it's humorous my children are not particularly amused. The whole idea, if I could choose one word about what I think would reestablish the quality of the nation's life, it's the word connections—connections across the generations. And if we end up focusing the reform movement on our structures and on our testing and fail to look at the quality of our children's lives, we will build a hollow system that has in it the processes but not the purpose. The problem is that this same spirit of anonymity in our culture is often found within the school itself. I must tell you, when I visited our high schools, I was struck by two words that kept coming to me time and time again. One I don't like and the other I I'm rather more fond of. The first one was irrelevance, which sort of lost its juices in the 60s. But for many young people, this school system has absolutely no relevance to their lives. They don't see the connectedness of things. There's also this huge climate of anonymity in which many young people, especially in our largest schools, feel disconnected. Most schools know the very good and the very bad, but that great middle ground, that band of gray remains anonymous and children move from class to class, unknown and unconnected to adults. If I had one wish, I would wish that every large school would be broken up into units of no more than 400 students each. I'd like to see every student assigned to a small family circle of no more than 20, headed by a mentor that would begin at the start of each day the old-fashioned homeroom idea. Not to take attendance, but to say, how are things going? What happened last night? Where were you yesterday? Okay, guys, let's make it through the day. Truth is, I think many students drop out because no one noticed that they had, in fact, dropped in. So I'd like to see, then, every school become a more humane place. This is not because teachers do not care. It's the fact that the system has gotten so big, the classes are even getting bigger. I'll tell you there's one state we just finished a survey of 7000 kindergarten teachers one state in this country where kindergarten averages 42 students each. If we don't by law mandate that no kindergarten and first grade can be less than can be can be no larger than 15 students each, we have done a profound disservice. Anyone who's worked with four and five year olds can't pass those laws. I mean, when I take three grandchildren to McDonald's, <clears throat> I mean, I come home a basket case uh, feeling relieved that we didn't have ketchup on the floor. Now, managing 42 little five-year-olds, unthinkable, immoral. I'd, al- I'd also like to see every student complete a community service term to help them see a connection between what they learn and how they live. They need to somehow be connected in the school, but they have to find a way to connect the school to the realities of life. Rachel Lindsay wrote on one occasion, it's the world's one crime, its babes grow dull. Not that they sow, but that they seldom reap. Not that they serve, but have no God to serve. Not that they die, but that they die like sheep. The tragedy is not death, the tragedy is to die with commitments undefined, with convictions undeclared, and with service unfulfilled. Let's give priority to language. Let's give more dignity and more status to the teachers. Let's break up big schools into smaller units. Let's involve parents in the process. And above all, let's help all students understand that to be truly human, one must serve. John Gardner wrote on one occasion, a nation is never finished. You can't build it and leave it standing as the Pharaohs did the pyramids. It must be renewed with each new generation and I'm convinced the challenge our generation now confronts is to reaffirm our commitments to the schools and deepen our obligation and dedication to our children. Thank you very much.
0: Boyer, thank you for the excitement, the audacity if you will, the exhilaration of the linguistic moment that you have shared with us. You have connected with us and and we with you and we are grateful and look forward to the balance of our time together. Uh, This is the moment to uh, invite those who must leave to do so and also to invite those who have written out questions on those yellow cards or any scrap of paper to pass those questions to the aisle, and they'll be promptly picked up and brought forward. To the radio uh, audience, let me remind that you have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, that you have been listening to Dr. Ernest L. Boyer, who is president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. His topic today has been education a new look for the 90s. Our co-sponsors today, the Bush Public Schools Executive Program and the Principal Leadership Program. Uh, Let me also remind the radio audience that you have the privilege of phoning in questions that will be posed, as time permits, to our speaker. The phone number here at Westminster is 332-3421, 332-3421. And with that, Dr. Bohr, would you be willing to return to the podium, sir? I couldn't uh, miss your eloquent, if also painful, statement that the world is spiritually impoverished. I remember reading in another place that you said teachers perform a spiritual function. Uh, How do they do that?
1: Teaching, I think, has um, three requirements. No, four. To be a great teacher, you first must have something to teach. You must be well informed. There's a subject to be taught. Second, you know students. that as you relate your subjects to the individuals in front of you. Third, uh, you create a climate in which student- students interact with one another. Cooperative rather than competitive learning is the key. And fourth, and this answers your question, Pastor, um, a great teacher, in my judgment, is also an authentic and compelling human being. That is, I've had good teachers, but the great ones are always the ones who, because of the power of who they were, presented a model, not just in the subject that they present, but in the life that they lived, as sentimental as it may sound. Ultimately, we not only teach the subject, we teach ourselves. Indeed, I have a little test for you. Uh, thinking back to the times when you went into classrooms, whether it was first grade or graduate school, the first question you didn't ask, I wager, was, if you can wager from, the, I'm sorry oh, to have right sanctified this uh, <laughs> spot, uh, uh, whatever you had done. The we first question, the all right, the first question you asked was, I wonder how many degrees he or she has. The first question was in your mind, what kind of a person do we have here? You try to figure the person out. Open, authentic. So if I might say so, what I'm really saying is it's the way the life is lived in the classroom. Open, honest, authentic, willing to say, I don't know, let's figure it out together. But you can really tell, you can really tell whether you're dealing with an open or or an evasive person. So the use of the spiritual here is in the broadest sense, not in a theological sense, but the quality so that you're connected both intellectually and evocatively. But that connection evocatively has an integrity it's bathed in integrity and it's in that regard that i think teachers create a spiritual experience
0: thank you for that answer you quoted de tocqueville in the last century as saying that we americans are the most enlightened people in the world would he say it today <laughs>
1: well uh if i might just correct the quotation um As a matter of fact, de Tocqueville said, we appear to be. Uh, (laughs) All right. uh, No, I, uh, so I want to go back that he hedged his bet even then. We appear to be the most enlightened in the world. Interesting little footnote to that, there was a survey of children in the United States and then some foreign countries uh, asking them about their competence in, I think, science and mathematics. The U.S. students rated themselves very high in how they felt about themselves and on the test scores they were quite low and in certain of the Asian countries the students rated themselves very low in their ability and on (laughs) the test itself uh, they were quite high so we really do think we're the best in the world Um, well let me just come to your question exactly in thirty seconds It's on certain international measures as crude as they are and we don't have good international instruments I think we're not mastering knowledge in the same way, which traditionally has been thought of as sort of a centerpiece of formal learning. And I don't disparage that. I sort of agree with uh, Don Hirsch's view that we need knowledge for cultural literacy. We need to have a shared frame of reference. History, tradition, literature, arts. So I'm a believer in core of knowledge. Last point I'd make though, I think we have to be very careful not to misjudge some other skills our students have. Coping, creativity, Ability to discern quickly, even verbally, in many instances, in spite of what I said. I was with uh, one of my favorite reporter friends, was in Japan schools for nearly three months, in which he said students didn't speak one time in the class. That is, there was a conformity to achieve, but there were some other characteristics. So, no, I don't think we're probably, uh, there's there's no reason to be arrogant about our educational system comparatively. That would be wrong. But I think the Tocqueville might be impressed by the way many of our students have developed some coping and independent skills uh, that uh, I think in the end might uh, lead them uh, into uh, a successful future. Let me just pause there and say I think the school should stress cooperation and not conformity, and uh, collaborative. And, uh, co- and uh, they also should focus on uh, avoiding, I think, uh, 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 competition.
0: Question from the audience: Would you please comment on the outcome-based education (OBE) movement that is currently sweeping the nation and is particularly popular in Minnesota? Thanks.
1: Well, I'm as less informed about the Minnesota scene as than I should be. Uh, the spirit of the outcome-based uh, movement is, I think, absolutely right. What we're trying to do here is say, if it's what I hinted at about the new governance. If you tell to a, tell a school, here's the outcome then the processes can become creative. So the spirit of that, and I think that's the key to figure out how to deal with this tension of school-based management versus national control. That's what I hinted at in my remarks. That applies to a student, too. Say, here's where we expect you to be. Now let's have a lot of creativity in getting there. But that means we have to do something we have not done in American education very well, and that is anticipate the goals, (laughs) you know, decide what the outcomes are. We have been hugely involved in process, but not in outcomes, completing what we call Carnegie Units. And I mention that with a little pain because our foundation 60 years ago created the so-called Carnegie Units in order to determine who's ready for college. It wasn't knowledge, it was seat time. If you spend 135 hours in a seat in science, you got a, you got a Carnegie unit. So um, what am I getting at? Oh, the outcomes uh, approach simply is saying, let's define the goals, let's try to figure out where we want students to go, and then uh, have creativity in the process. And the theory of that, I think, is absolutely right.
0: Another question from the floor, and obviously from an educator. For those of us directly involved as teachers, School helping professionals, etc. How do we best become political, in quotes, in the sense of being heard by those who are making decisions about how we do our jobs, and who increasingly tie our hands with paperwork in the name of accountability?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh dear! Should never agree to this at <laughs> Q and A. <laughs> this was part of the ground rule, though. I mention, uh, only to say I don't have, I I wish I had an easy formula. I mean, sometimes the best answer is, I don't know, and I'm almost inclined to say that here. I do think though, back to my comments about teachers, um, if we could talk to our colleagues who are making these political decisions, uh, in very direct and human terms and try to convert it into individuals, both in terms of students who are hurting and uh, teachers who are helping. It's sometimes the the very personal and direct that has the power. If you're talking about it in institutional terms and power plays and the abstractions of that, you get lost. But I'm always impressed that what often is most persuasive is the anecdote that's most from the heart, whatever that might be. I mean, watch the congressional hearings, of which I was a part at at a given time. Just try to spend a day with C-SPAN, which incidentally is a wonderful public service and is part of the village green tradition of this Westminster Forum. But what I'm mentioning is you can see people who go through the ritual of arguing budgets and facilities and how we're uh, not getting what we need, and then somebody just goes in front of the camera and starts telling you <laughs> right from the heart what they've seen in the classroom some children who have been helped or hurt some teachers who have been creative and suddenly the attention peaks because it it's in a it's a believable narrative so i guess the only solution i know is to speak from the heart speak clear english if you can i mean i mean to say by that sometimes educators are their own worst enemies by the convoluted way in which, mess- and that's true of all professions, we really have created separate professional language in order to give the illusion of erudition.
0: <laughs>
1: when really, when really people are saying, what do you mean? What do you mean? If you can't say it in a way that is straight, plain English, then you're probably not going to be heard. You will reinforce the prejudices. Have a clear message, state it directly, try to make it as personal and human as possible, and frankly, make it clear you're not trying to do it self-servingly, but rather it's in the larger social interest. And I guess on balance, even though I think we're living in a very tough time, budgets are cut, competing forces between children's interests, uh, prisons, highways, I mean the legislators are struggling. But my own feeling is, and I used to testify to Congress and I used to testify before the New York State Legislature for eight years, I still felt that on balance, most people would rather do the right thing than wrong. They'd rather do the right thing than the wrong thing. They'd rather help kids and see them hurt. They'd rather have good teachers than bad teachers. So to just play on the belief that there's more goodness than badness in this process is itself reassuring. And once in a while, <coughs> once in a while you go home being proved dead wrong. But uh, I do think that, over, that overall, most legislators are trying to struggle with some very tough. Priorities, and they will listen. Elic- they will listen carefully to those who just try to sell their- tell their story straight, right from the heart, and especially if it conveys what's happening to people.
0: Thank you. Well, another question: What about the uh, service component in education? You've said you referred to that briefly. Would you comment more length? Well,
1: I think the uh, we did propose a, rec- a, re- a community service in our book High School, from which you quoted. Uh, also re- re- repeated it in our book, College. I don't think it's the only answer, but I think at least it symbolizes what I feel is this disconnectedness to which I referred. I think the argument for service can be made on two or three points. I tended to play up the social-civic connection. But I also would make the point that service has a powerful pedagogical possibility as well. Uh, Donald Shone at MIT is arg- is presenting a very interesting thesis around what he calls the reflective practitioner. And he's pointing out that it's possible to go from theory to practice, but it's also possible to go from practice back to theory. In other words, the very laboratory experience gives you new insights to the theory of what you've learned. So it's not simply reaching out in a in a sentimental, and I don't mean that as soft as it sounds, it also can be argued on serious educational grounds that every child before he or she graduates should see how the theory of classroom relates to some reality of life and then tries to refine what they have learned and build on it. Every, everyone who works with student teachers knows that. I felt for years the best way to prepare school teachers was not in the classroom on the campus so much as it was in the classroom in the school working with mentor teachers. There you see the reality of the laboratory and out of that experience you can generalize your theory. Incidentally, footnote on that, I would insist, insist (laughs) like I have any power, uh, but I would suggest that every student engaged in a service component be asked to write about it and critique the experience. It's not only reaching out in a community service, it's learning from it. And some of the things you learn are painful. You know, you learn some things, but the describing it and the writing it makes it a valid educational experience. So I would call for it from a, from a pedagogical sense and from a social-civic sense and would insist that if it's a requirement in the school, students should be asked to write about it and then critique their own experience. Thank you.
0: This is a question from the radio audience. What suggestions do you have for citizens to adjust their attitudes away from test scores and outcomes toward the awareness and processes that you expressed?
1: Well, as is always the case, you begin where you are. Um, Most of us are parents or grandparents. Uh, Most of us do have connections with schools. Uh, Most of us have opportunities to write letters to newspapers. Most of us can go to local town meetings. I mean, I don't America has this delicious decentralization. And on one hand, it is frustrating that we don't have any minister of education. I guess <laughs> every single day I say a prayer of thanks that we don't. Uh, I don't want any uh, hierarchy dictating a uh, uh, shift in priorities. It does grow out, though, of the vitality of the debate in communities all across the country, in Westminster Town Hall, and all the rest. That, And as I go across the country, I'm intrigued at this commonality of agenda. So while we're dispersed, it's amazing the way our connections continue. And I think it does root in the local action, parental action. I mean, I just start, how long has it been since you thanked a teacher? Or even when parents think of the school, it's easy to... Find fault, but sometimes you might ask for special hearing at a school board and say, I'd like to take just five minutes and talk about one of your teachers. I've often thought too, every college, I have a suggestion, every college should ask the incoming freshmen to name the one student, the one teacher they've had in the preceding 12 years that was most influential, and then have the college send a letter to that teacher and say, you've been selected by one of our students, as the one who made the difference. And we just wanted to thank you. Can you imagine every year, millions of those letters would go out. The name, and I'll I'll guarantee you those teachers, those letters would be prized, stuck on the mirror, keep teachers going. But years go by and hardly anyone acknowledges. So I guess I'd say look around and figure out how within your family or your school or your community, you can affirm the priorities that focus on what I guess I'd call the human uh, dimensions of school excellence.
0: Another question from the radio audience. In your research, have you found viable alternatives, tra- uh, alternatives to traditional education for children?
1: Well, let me say that um, quickly stress that while I've been trying to talk here about where is the reform movement going, every single day there are teachers who live out this quality of life we've been discussing, and there are schools that we visit. I can't, I wouldn't choose to name one now, but the answer is yes, yes, yes. Good teachers uh, know intuitively what the process is, and incidentally I'd say principles are critically important. I have I don't mean in any authoritarian sense, but I, for years, have been impressed how essential leadership is. And while I've talked about school-based management with teacher empowerment, by and large, their ability to either grow or feel diminished is established by the quality of the principal who creates a climate and affirms or restricts. And whether it's procedural, whether it's focused on process or purpose, is really the is really the essence of the quality of an institution. Are we preoccupied with procedures, or are we inspired by the purposes? And that's a climate that the principal establishes at the local school, and teachers know it uh, every single day. So the answer is yes to the questioner. We've seen many places, but frankly, the system-wide attitude does not reflect it, and that tends to cool down the system.
0: Would you care to comment on the challenge of the growing minority school population?
1: Oh, well, sure. The, uh, you know the data. I mean, the face of young America's changing. Now about a third of the students in our schools are, are non-white from different minorities, black, Hispanic, and increasingly from the Asian community. Some regions of the country, it's long since gone majority The Southwest all the way around from Texas, the band, through New Mexico and Arizona and Southern California. New Mexico is something like 55% non-white. Los Angeles County, I think, is well beyond the halfway mark. Interesting point, the University of California, Berkeley entering freshman class, one-third was white. One-third of the Berkeley students admitted this fall was white. So we have a changing America. The regions vary, not so in Minnesota to the same extent, but if you look at our countrywide, uh, we're changing. Now the question, the big debates, that's, that's causing a lot of tension as to how we deal with, quotes multiculturalism. I, I just wish we could celebrate that and think creatively instead of getting scared about it. This country's always been able to find a way to accommodate the waves of immigrants. Um... I think that there's a richness here, but what I worry about is that we clutch up and we end the danger right now in America is we're, we're we're becoming tribal. Since we don't have any larger loyalties, we're building we're hunkering down around little loyalties. and And those tend to be more divisive and integrative. We don't have common language, and the connectedness is gone. And I think it shows up on college campuses. We just did a report called Campus Life that studied universities and colleges and you talk about schools having segregation problems look at college campuses attitudinally you'll have I mean a chancellor of one of the biggest greatest universities told me he's running really four different institutions based on cultural enclaves so America has a great problem to find larger loyalties and if we don't figure out a way to celebrate this and enrich the curriculum not to disparagingly look at our own Western culture I I have a little formula goes this way it's too it's too simplistic, but I'll say it, and then <laughs> it'll be after lunch before, you know, you have to think of an answer. Um, my, I think we need to study not, uh, Western cultures to understand our past, and we need to understand non-Western cultures to under, uh, understand our future. And we've always had an accommodation to enrich what we study in our schools as we discover new things. It's not a frozen thing. There is no rigid core. So, I guess I would celebrate the diversity but make the point it's dangerous at the moment great transition and how we deal with that I think is going to determine whether America will remain united not in a political sense so much but certainly in a spiritual sense there goes that word again Hmm.
0: Sir you wrote in one setting getting the public's attention has always been the first step in the march toward progress in our nation you have gotten our attention today. And don't s- stop me if I'm wrong, but I think I read that you have 101 honorary degrees. Uh, I'm not nearly as impressed with that fact as the way you share of yourself with us today. Is <laughs> <In> that right? <laughs> <laughs> really? an old report.